Turning once again to the book of Exodus and picking up a new theme that will help give us an overview of the message of this most important book. We've considered uh, various issues here. We just have spent some little time uh, dealing with the uh, worship that God had delivered these people from the place of bondage, from the place of uh, affliction, delivering them to this place of freedom, but that freedom involved service unto Him. Uh, the master changed, but the necessity of service continued. Uh, and part of that service was involved in the entire worship of that community. And we spent some little time uh, with the uh, tabernacle uh, and the various pieces of furniture and the great prophetic picture, picture prophecy uh, that that gives us of the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today we uh, pick up a new theme. I want to consider something uh, of where God was delivering these people to. Uh, he brought them from the place of Egypt. He delivered them from that uh, place of bondage. Uh, but he did not bring them out just to let them wander around in uh, the desert. did not bring them out just to uh, exist in Never Never Land. There was a particular place that God had purposed for these people uh, to dwell. And I want to address a little bit of that uh, this morning. Now, let's turn first then to Exodus uh, chapter 3 uh, and read this statement uh, at verse number 8. Uh, you pick it up at verse 7. This is back in that call that God had given to Moses to bring him as the leader uh, of this great Exodus. This here is at the burning bush. Uh, and at verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, uh, and large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So from one land to another the land of bondage, the land of affliction, to that land which is here described as being good, as being large, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Uh, and our study of Exodus up to this point has concerned God's delivering them from that land of Egypt. Uh, but that was only uh, the first part of this deliverance. There was a place, there was a land uh, that God had purposed for these people. Now, if you go back to the sixth chapter, can I bring you back here to what we've really marked as the uh, theological synopsis, the overview of the uh, entire uh, book of Exodus. Most of these themes that we are developing uh, are uh, stated in synopsis form in these uh, verses beginning at verse number six. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in 
uh, unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. All right, so most of what we have discussed so far have been the issues of verses 6 and 7. Deliverance uh, and brought into this place of service uh, unto the Lord. But now verse 8 again draws our attention very specifically to this land of promise that God had for these people. I say God did not redeem them to leave them out in the wilderness, uh, but there was an inheritance that belonged to this people. Now, to understand the full significance uh, of the land, again, we go back as the Lord did in His Word to Moses, to that promise that was given to Abraham. Uh, we have said something of the Abrahamic covenant already. It is a most important uh, theological epic in God's dealings uh, with His people. Uh, in that Abrahamic covenant, there was the promise of a seed, uh, ultimately, and primarily and principally. Uh, that seed was the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what the New Testament tells us, but I submit that if we follow the argument and the theology of Genesis, uh, we don't have to wait until Paul's uh, analogy to understand that that seed of promise was the designated reverser of the curse. Uh, that God had promised from the very beginning uh, of his salvific dealings with man back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, so here is this seed. I say ultimately the promise of that seed was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But between Abraham and the coming of that seed, there had to be uh, a very physical seed. Uh, Christ did not just, as it were, come uh, out of heaven one day in full manifestation. He was born into uh, he was born into uh, the human race. Uh, he was born of a woman, made under the law, uh, and all of the implications of that real humanity of Christ. So there is a real sense in which before there could be a Christ, there had to be an Isaac. Uh, and before there could be a Christ, there had to be a Jacob, and right on down the line, there had to be a Judah uh, into which the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come. So there was a physical seed. There was a nation that was to come uh, from Abraham that was... Uh, to be counted as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. Uh, it was important that there was a physical uh, seed that would come, uh, the means through which, into which, the Lord Jesus would ultimately come. But that seed promise, I can't emphasize how important uh, a theological truth is uh, that ties the entire Old Testament Scriptures together and is the link to Matthew in the New Testament, uh, this promise of the coming seed a very important part of that Abrahamic covenant. Uh, so there was the physical seed, there was the spiritual seed, uh, because you and I are also part of that spiritual seed of Abraham. All of those that are believers in the seed are part of that, uh, part of that spiritual seed. Again, follow the uh, theology of the Scripture that becomes very clear. But there was also in that connection uh, the promise of a land. Uh, if and this makes sense, all right, from a very pragmatic, uh, if a very pragmatic uh, perspective, there had to be the promise of a land. Uh, if God was going to make into this uh, seed a great nation, it had to have some place to live. Uh, that, that's just very obvious. Uh, they, they don't just float around. If they are real people, a real nation, there had to be a place where they had to reside. Uh, and there was... Uh, in the progressing of the developing of that, uh, of that nation, this provision of a land. You go to Genesis 
chapter 15. And uh, this land uh, is specified precisely there at the end of that chapter. Uh, verse uh, 18 of chapter 15 of Genesis. Uh, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Uh, these people are living there now. But the Lord says, I am giving this land from the Euphrates right to the river uh, of Egypt. And you can uh, interpret that as you will. I interpret that as the Nile. Uh, here is the land, the territory that God in his promise to Abraham had given to the physical seed uh, that would belong to him. Now, that promise did not come right away. Uh, God did not allow Abraham to put up, as it were, the no trespassing signs on the bank of the Euphrates and the bank of the Nile, uh, saying, this land is my land. Uh, it was, but Abraham here is just uh, one man, a little bitty family at this point. Uh, Abraham himself did not receive that inheritance in total. Uh, that was to come. But here I say was the promise that God had given to him that would come to fulfillment in terms of his physical, uh, in terms of his physical seed. This land was a real land. The geographic terms are there described uh, for us uh, in a very precise way. Uh, and as we come to the land, as we come to look at this land promise, uh, we want to see it as uh, that indeed which was promised by God. It was part of the promise. Uh, it was going to be something that God gave to these people. Uh, they're going to have to, and we'll see this in the book of Joshua, they had to come into possession of that. Uh, there was the element of faith, the element of conquest. It becomes uh, a, a most important and, and far-reaching uh, lesson that God is giving the people. Uh, in the Old Testament and to us as well. Now, as we come to look at the land, let me just make some very broad general statements here first. And I'm only going to be suggestive that uh, this is great theology. We want to see the land in two ways. There is a literal land. There is no way that we can come to this and interpret the land in, uh, without seeing the dirt uh, that is their promise. There was a geographic uh, dirt promise, if you will, that God was giving to these people uh, a place for them to live. And the borders there are described. Uh, so it was a real place. But having said that, there is also a spiritual lesson uh, that was associated with the land. I'm going to be arguing here, at least in part, that the land was a type. We talked about types, right? Types are picture prophecies. Uh, they were object lessons given to that contemporary people, uh, teaching them and teaching us important spiritual truths, uh, but also picture prophecies of that which uh, is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the complete salvific uh, promise that God has for his people. So there are spiritual lessons here. Uh, now, this, this gets to be somewhat, uh, somewhat complicated at times, and this is it, it ought not to be. Uh, I see that we have different theological perspectives that come and, and, and look at this land from uh, recognizing these two perspectives, uh, but failing to put them together. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into all the prophetic aspect of this. That's not my point in this study. Uh, but let me just say this. Uh, 
we, we have two, we have many eschatological views, as you all are well aware. Uh, but uh, we, we have what we refer to and what I am as a premillennialist. Uh, and uh, the notion of premillennialism is ultimately that there is going to be on earth a literal kingdom uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will personally and visibly rule from. Uh, now, you can disagree with me if you, if, if you like, but I hope you realize that you have a whole lot of Bible that you're disagreeing with, too. But that's, that's, just, that's your conscience, all right? Rhett, that's your conscience. You just work that out yourself. Uh, but, but, but that's premillennialism, all right? That there is going to be a literal kingdom upon the earth from which Jesus Christ is going to rule. Uh, and I believe, it is my view, that Israel, as a national entity in that kingdom age, will possess this particular land from the Euphrates to the Nile. Uh, that is not the totality of the earth, all right? It is not just a Jewish promise. There's none of this that is just a Jewish promise. Uh, but I, I say I take that uh, as a literal land promise. Uh, some of our all-millennial friends, Rhett back there, uh, I'm not going to explain all of his view. I'm not, I'm not his spokesman. Uh, but, uh, but, the notion, but the notion is basically that uh, this land promise, while it is real, uh, all that God promised Israel has been fulfilled in that, uh, in that regard. And then there is, we see the spiritual implications of this land. And there's a truth there. Uh, there is certainly a truth there. Uh, I, some of my premillennial friends fail to see the spiritual significance of the land. Uh, and some of my amillennial friends fail to see the ultimate literal significance of the land. Uh, and my view, of course, which is always the best, uh, <laughs> right? Always the best, uh, recognizes both. All right, recognizes. And it's not an either or deal. All right, it is not an either or deal. There is a literal aspect. Now, please. All right, I, I've been thinking about this a lot here. Don't get... Don't confuse arrogance. All right? I'm not. Ar Don't confuse arrogance with confidence. All right. There's there's a difference here. All right. Just just so we're getting our terms defined properly. Right. Uh, of course, I think I'm right, and everybody else thinks they're right. And you'd be a fool if you took a position that you thought was wrong just so you could be humble. Right. I mean, that's that that's stupid. All right. Uh, but we won't get into all of the philosophy. Of that. But what I'm going to be suggesting is that, yes, there's a literal land. Uh, Israel was going someplace. All right? Israel was going someplace. But yet that land had spiritual lessons and a spiritual truth uh, that was to be understood by them and to be understood by us as well. Uh, and I say I'm not going to develop this. We may sometime do that. But I want to put it in this perspective. Uh, very generally here, because as we come to this, uh, yes, I want us to see that they were going someplace. There was a land of promise where they were going to dwell. Uh, but yet, at the same time, there are spiritual lessons. There are typical symbolic lessons there that were intended. Uh, and in my view of typology is not something that I'm reading into that just to rescue it for Christian relevance. There is something there that God intended, uh, that God was teaching them and teaching us uh, that, uh, indeed, we must recognize. Now, as we come to Exodus, this is not going to be a well-developed theme in Exodus, but I want to address it here because it is marked as one of the themes. But the point is, uh, the point is here that Israel, after this Exodus, in the book of Exodus, never got to that promised land. They never got to that promised land. They got out of Egypt. They were delivered from that place of bondage. They were delivered from that place of affliction. 
uh, they were redeemed. But in the book of Exodus, while this land was put before them, they never got into that land. They never got into it. They're looking forward to it. Uh, they're moving in that direction, as it were. Uh, but they never got to that land. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it was a sure promise. You look at the language here uh, of this key paragraph in Exodus chapter 6. Uh, and you have exactly the same certain language uh, that describes the exodus as describes the entrance uh, into the land of promise. I will bring you out. Here's the Lord's word to Moses. I will certainly bring you out uh, from this place of bondage. And with the same confidence, uh, with the same declared uh, uh, statement in verse 8, I will bring you into the land. They were both as certain as the other. Now, as we read the book of Exodus, we see that the first part of that has been fulfilled. God indeed brought them out, and He brought them out well uh, from that place of bondage. Well, just as certainly as God did that, He will do the other as well. He will bring us, He will bring them into that final and complete inheritance that He has for His people. It is just as certain God always finishes uh, what He uh, begins now uh, to understand what uh, I, I want to say here. Uh, we're going to back up just a little bit, maybe expand this a, a little bit so that we can get the full spiritual implications of what's involved here uh, in this promise of the land. It's associated. I'm going to make this concluding statement here, and then I'll try to explain what the significance of that statement is. The land is described as a place of rest. All right? We want to associate this concept of rest. The land was going to be a place of rest uh, for the people. Now, ultimately, this is going to be a type of. We're going to see that this land then is a type of. It is going to be a prophecy of uh, heaven, that place of ultimate and complete rest. Uh, for the people of God. Uh, and you can see the obvious connection here. Uh, Israel was not put in the land the same day they were redeemed, uh, and neither have we uh, been placed in that ultimate rest in heaven uh, the day we believed. Uh, there is a sojourning. All right? There is a sojourning between, uh, between the time of our conversion and the time under at least the normal procedure uh, between that and our entering into the place of heaven. That just reminded me of a song that I heard. Did I ever tell you? I told you about that song I heard. I was preaching someplace. Forget where I was preaching. Uh, sometimes the music uh, in some of these places I preach is not what we're used to hearing uh, here. Uh, and we won't get into all of that right now. Uh, but I, I never will forget one of these. So I was getting ready to preach. I was getting ready to preach and I had this quartet had this quartet and they were, you know, had the microphones there. And I, you know, Lord bless them. Uh, you had to hear them. Uh, but the song, I never heard this song before in my life and I'll never forget it. And I don't, I just know this one idea. That between the, between the, between the earth and heaven, or between the cross and heaven, between the cross and heaven, there's a whole lot of living going on. Really? Between the cross and heaven, there's a whole lot of living going on. Well, all right, now we, we can argue about whether that was a good tune or whatever else, and, what, and the theology was not particularly profound, but I'm saying to you, all right. I'm sa I never thought in the world I would use that as a point to make. 
right? Uh, but but the, the, the truth of it is, between our conversion and between our entering into the place of heaven, for the most part, there's a whole lot of living going on. I never thought I would say that. Uh, but, it, but it's true. All right? But, it, but it's true enough. Uh, and, and there are battles to fight and there are, uh, there are victories to win. Uh, and the land and the conquest of that land. And the book of Joshua brings in a whole little different perspective of this uh, that uh, we may talk about someday. Uh, the possessing of our inheritance. How do we get the promise that God has given to us? Uh, well, we're going to see... And if you study this whole idea of rest in the land, that'll become a very important notion. Let me let me show you this reference in Exodus 33. It's a great text that we refer to here on many a prayer meeting night. In Exodus chapter 33. This is after the golden calf incident, right? And you know all of the problems there and the Lord's ready to wipe out this people and start all over again with Moses. Moses intercedes uh, in behalf of his people and so forth. Uh, verse uh, verse 13. Uh, now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I might or may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation uh, is thy people. Uh, and he said, the Lord said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up thence or hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight and so forth. All right, now notice that promise that God gives. Notice the promise that God gives there to Moses. My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. It's a key verse here that defines really the theological import of what uh, rest is. To be in the place of rest is to be in the presence of God. Right, now, this is the overriding theological truth here. God's rest and God's presence. You study this out and you'll find that this link is very often made between the presence of God and rest. There is a whole theology of rest uh, in the Word of God. Uh, and the land is going to be seen as a place of rest. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was where God rested. So much evidence here, but just take your concordance sometime. I'm not going to do this for you this morning. You just take your concordance sometime and look up the word rest in the Old Testament. Uh, and just look at the context in which God is promising rest, in which the people are experiencing rest, uh, and you will find that when you put it all together, uh, that this verse really is giving us a very uh, wonderful synopsis of what rest is. To be in the place of rest is to be in the presence of God. Uh, whole theology uh, of rest. Now, the land, I'm saying, uh, the land was viewed as a place of rest. A place of rest. Uh, you, you look at uh, Exodus chapter 9 and verse 29. The Lord there says that all the earth belongs to me. It's all mine. But there was this particular place that God had for His people uh, where ultimately they were going to enjoy and experience 
this rest. Deuteronomy, uh, look at Deuteronomy sometime. I'm just giving a theological synopsis here. Uh, Twenty-five times, at least in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, reference is made to God giving the people the land. I'm going to give all the earth is mine, but I'm going to give this particular part of the earth uh, to my people. A good land, a prosperous land, one that was blessed, land flowing with milk and honey, as we saw the description uh, here already uh, in Exodus. God is going to give them the land, and that land uh, was a place of rest. A place where they were going to involve, when they entered into this and experienced this ultimately, it was going to be peace from their enemies. Uh, going to be a peace, a cessation of the hostility that they would know from the various enemies that they were battling. Uh, the Lord was going to give them peace. Going to give them peace. Now, uh, if this land is a place of rest, uh, Israel, in their history, never possessed all of that territory. We can argue that, and that's one of the arguments between pre-mills and ah-mills. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but even the rest that they did enjoy, the possession of the land that they did enjoy, uh, was always temporary. It was always temporary. Joshua got a good part of the land for him, but uh, it wasn't long before the judges come and some of that land is taken away again. Uh, and there's a struggle for that over and again. We come into the David, and David says the Lord gave him rest in that time, and Solomon got rest in his time, but then the kingdom is divided and the kingdom is taken away. Uh, there, there was never a, 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 a total and irreversible possession of that land. Now, why? Why? Uh, because, if you can see the theological import, there was more to the land than dirt. You see? There was more to this land promise than just dirt. Uh, if, if that's all it was, uh, then it was fulfilled and bingo. Then who cares what happens? No, but there was more to it than just dirt. Uh, con their possession of the land and their enjoyment of the land was always conditioned by faith. And every, every succeeding generation had to possess the land, if you will, enjoy the land uh, in, in terms of faith. Look, look at Psalm 95. Look at Psalm 95. This is the key text, I think. Psalm is obviously in two parts. And on the surface, it appears that these two parts are almost mutually exclusive, one from the other. First part of the psalm comes and gives us the invitation to praise. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence uh, with thanksgiving. Remember what we said now about rest and presence? Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above the gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth, the strength of the hills. Uh, is His also, the sea is His. He made it. He, uh, his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God and we are His people of His, uh, of his pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. And all of a sudden, we're going back to the wilderness. Here is this imperative to praise God. Here is this imperative to worship the Lord, to enjoy that place of His presence, to be in that communion with Him. And now all of a sudden we have this historical lesson about uh, the wilderness experience. 
On the surface, it seems that there's no connection. Ah, but there is. Harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into what? My rest. My rest. Now, in that wilderness experience, they were not entering into the land. They weren't getting into the land. But here in the theological explanation of that, the reason they did not enter into the land was not because, uh, was not because of their inexperience with military uh, strategy and their lack of weaponry and this, that, and the other. That's not why they didn't enter in. They did not enter into that land because of unbelief. They didn't believe the promise of God. Uh, they didn't believe the Word of God. Uh, they doubted the promise. And because of that unbelief, they did not enter into the land that God says was my rest. Was my rest. What precludes us from the enjoyment of the presence of God? It is unbelief. If we are going to know the praise, again, there, there's a very obvious link between the presence of God in verse 2 of this psalm and the rest of God in the last verse of this psalm. To be in the place of rest is to be in the place uh, of the presence of God, to enjoy that communion, to enjoy that fellowship. Uh, they did not enter into that, uh, not because, I say, of their military weakness, but because of unbelief. They were not appropriating the promise that God had given. There was the failure of faith. Now, that's why each succeeding generation, uh, in terms of this land, had to prove it themselves. Uh, if this land, and, and you read it in Moses uh, or, or to, to Abraham, and this land was their possession as an everlasting possession. That was God's word to Abraham. It's going to be an everlasting possession. But here comes Joshua. And it wasn't an everlasting possession. Uh, here comes David and Solomon. No, the Babylonians took them away. The Assyrians took them away. Why? Why? Unbelief. Unbelief. They were not going to be, they could not be in that land, even though that was dirt. See? But God had put a theological lesson, made a theological lesson about that dirt. And unless they had faith, unless they obeyed, unless they were faithful to the covenant, they could not be in that place that was so picturesque of the presence, the presence of God. You go to Deuteronomy. I know I'm not in Exodus yet. I'll get there. But I'll establish the foundation here. In Deuteronomy particularly, uh, in, in that last sermon that God gives to the people, uh, through Moses. Uh, here, here's the curses and, and here is the blessings. And Moses says, you're gonna, you're, this is the 40 years up now. Right? That unbelieving generation has died in the wilderness that we just read about in Psalm uh, 95. They're dead. Uh, and, and now this new generation uh, that were not responsible for that unbelief that kept them out of the promised land. Now they are on the verge of entering into that land uh, under now the leadership of Joshua, the conqueror, about to go across the Jordan, enter into that land. But Moses gives them some very stern warnings. You're going to enter into this land. It's a great land, flowing with milk and honey, right? All of this stuff. Uh, these people are here, but not to worry. God has given you this land. God is going to expel the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Hivites, the whole lot of these people. God is going to expel these and going to give you that land. But just remember, you just remember, that if you get once you get into that land, and you forget this covenant. You get into that land and you go a-whoring after other gods. 
you get into that land and you enter into alliance with the uh, ungodly uh, in that place and you forsake the covenant and you go after other gods, then you bank on it, God says, you're out of here. You are not going to stay in this land if there is disobedience, if there is unbelief. They did not enter in because of unbelief and God is telling them you're not going to stay here in unbelief either. Can't stay here in unbelief. That destroys the whole picture. That destroys the whole prophecy that God is giving here in this, uh, in this uh, very visible object lesson. You can't be here if there is unbelief. Well, what happens? We know the story. Right? We know the story. They get in there and they go whoring after other gods. They break the covenant. Uh, they are obvious disbelievers, unbelievers. They're pagans. And God then brings the Assyrians first of all and He gets the northern people out of there. Then He brings the Babylonians and He gets the southern people out of there. You can't be in this land in unbelief. It's a great picture then. It's a great picture uh, of heaven itself where we're going to be in the eternal presence of God. Obviously, there's no entrance into that place and no staying in that place uh, without, uh, without faith without meeting the conditions that God has established, faith and repentance, believing the gospel. Uh, and, and then, as I say, when we come to, uh, when we come to the book of Joshua, uh, you're going to see there the conquest and the fighting of that. How, how do we gain possession? The great picture of our sanctification. Uh, as we deal then with the Canaanites that are still trying to keep us out of the land and keep us from claiming the promise that God has given to us. How do we get victory over those uh, enemies that are there? great picture of sanctification. I want you to see there's more to the land than just, uh, just those geographic boundaries. Uh, and, and the geographic boundaries, in a sense, was not the key thing that Israel had to learn from this. Uh, what is the spiritual message? I'm going to take you, the Lord says, into this place of rest. I don't want to go too far afield here. Uh, but let me just throw this out because this is part of the theology of rest as well. Why is it then? Why is it uh, that the fourth commandment is that we are to keep the Sabbath day. Why are we to keep the Sabbath day? Following God's example uh, in creation, He rested, therefore we rest. Uh, imitating God, there's a sense in which our keeping the Sabbath is an imitation of God. Uh, he rested, we rest. And then in Deuteronomy, uh, the remembrance uh, of the, uh, of the uh, redemption that God has effected for us uh, from the place uh, from the place of our sin. But the Sabbath day is a day of rest. It's a day of rest. Now that rest is not just idleness. That rest is not just quitting doing this and doing that. Read your confession. Read the catechism. Uh, and, and you'll see that uh, they're, they're picking up certainly on the implications of this. That to be in rest and the Sabbath day becomes a means whereby we can uh, enjoy that rest that we have with God, the presence of God. To be in the Sabbath rest, see, to enjoy the Sabbath rest, uh, is to know something and to experience something of that presence and that communion uh, with the Lord. That's why heaven itself, that's why heaven itself uh, is defined in terms of an eternal and everlasting keeping of Sabbath. That's what heaven is the ultimate rest, you see. Uh, it is the ultimate keeping of Sabbath. That's uh, what Paul argues in Hebrews chapter 4. Look at the various rests. There's creation rest and there's conquest rest and there's uh, this rest and that rest and finally there is that Sabbath rest, uh, heaven itself and the rest that Christ has accomplished. Uh, 
for His people. To be in the presence. To be in the presence of God. All right, so, saying all I have to say this, uh, that when we come to Exodus, and there's not much uh, specific things that we can look at here because they did not enter into that land, but I want you to understand something of the hope that was being put before them. When God promised the land here in a spiritual sense, He was promising to these people the enjoyment of His presence, uh, the enjoyment of that communion and that fellowship and that peace with Him, uh, the time that would be when all enemies would be set aside, when all of the troubles and the trials and the stuff of life would be set aside, uh, that they would know in that perfect and that complete, uh, that complete way all of the peace that God had uh, in store for his people. Uh, I say they never make it. They, may, they never make it uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, we come to Joshua. Maybe someday we'll talk about Joshua and see the uh, the nature of the conquest there and, and the uh, experience of that land and how that land was achieved. And I say it's a great picture of how you and I have to deal with sin every day of our lives. Uh, we've got the promise, but how do we now, while we're doing all this living between the cross and heaven, how do we get that victory? Uh, how do we achieve that victory and enjoy even now some of that peace uh, from the enemy that God has promised uh, for us? So, I think that's all I need to say really uh, about the land here. It's not a well-developed theme in Exodus, but it is part of the promise uh, that God had given to the people. Uh, I will bring you to this place of peace, this place of deliverance, this place of prosperity. Uh, something like you've never known before. Uh, and uh, it was guaranteed was guaranteed. They didn't get it all at once. But uh, it reminds me of what Paul says concerning, uh, concerning our salvation uh, in, in Philippians, right? That uh, that which he has begun, he will finish. Uh, but we don't get it all at once. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Uh, and the future part is just as certain as the past part. Uh, but there's a struggle sometimes. Uh, as we come into the experience of all of the blessing uh, that God has given to us. So the land promise goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, goes back to Genesis. Uh, and remember that Genesis canonically was at the same time of Exodus, so these people had that promise right uh, in their face, as it were, as they're coming out of the place of Egyptian bondage. Uh, this was the promise that they had, uh, and the Lord was certainly going to bring them uh, into that place uh, of great promise. All right, that's where they were going to be delivered. Now, that is the overview. All right, that is the overview. We've considered these various topics. Who delivered them? How did he deliver? Where did he deliver? Why did he deliver? Uh, all of those, I think, give us a, a good synopsis of the, uh, of the message uh, of the book. Now, what I think I'll do uh, is now come and look at some of the specifics. I'm going to look at just a few specifics. We're not going to go through the book chapter by chapter. Uh, but I, I want to pick out a few specific themes that I think will, uh, will, will do us good here and encourage us in our, uh, our lives as we seek to make our way to the promised land, as it were. Now, one of the things that, uh, and I'll just set this up, our time is just about gone today. Uh, so I'll just set this up where I want to go. One of the things that, to me, stand out in the book of Exodus, are, are the tests and the trials uh, of faith that God gave to these people. In bondage, God hears their cries, their afflictions. He comes and He sends a deliverer. Here comes Moses. 
And as soon as they hear the word of deliverance, and as soon as they believe the promise that God was giving to them through Moses, what happens? Took the, took the straw away. And as soon as they believe the promise, life got worse. As soon as they believed the promise, life got worse. God teaching them a lesson through that preliminary test. So I want us to look at what happened in Egypt. There are four great tests. All right, this is where I'm going to go here in these next few weeks. Four great tests that God gave the people. First of all, in Egypt, when they received the promise immediately, things got worse before they got better. The second test is going to happen at the Red Sea. At the Red Sea, they had now been delivered. God brought them out. Everything was going well until they get to the Red Sea and they appear to be cornered. They Defeat now seems to be certain. They can't go forward. They look behind them and there is the coming of the chariots of Pharaoh. Everything appears to be hopeless. God always good in saving them brought them out, but now I say here at the Red Sea, certain defeat uh, seemed to be the only possibility before them. That was a test. And then we're going to get to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we're going to see those tests of the great needs that happen after great victories. God delivered them from the Red Sea. What a magnificent deliverance that was. Miraculous deliverance. And as soon as they get out from the Red Sea and they start making their way just a little way into the wilderness, nothing to drink, nothing to eat, life is hard. It appeared that God was just playing games. He would do something and then abandon them. Do something and then seem to forget them. What was God teaching the people in these experiences? Uh, after great victories. And then finally, we'll look at the test at Sinai. Uh, and there was the great test of waiting upon the Lord. Moses went up to the mountain. I'll be back, he said. I'll be back. Well, he's up there. And he's up there. And he's not coming back. How long is he going to be gone? Now the leader that brought them out, they appear to be completely by themselves. They're waiting and they lose patience with the Lord, and that leads to the golden calf. How do we respond? How are we to act to this test of waiting upon the Lord? So, this is what I'll, in the will of the Lord, do in these next few weeks. Look at some of these tests that God gave the people. Uh, and I think we'll find them very true to our lives, remembering that all of these things happened to Israel for our examples, uh, to teach us lessons. Uh, sometimes we learn the negative lesson as to how we are not to respond. Uh, sometimes the positive lesson, how we are to respond. But all of things, these things were there for our examples. And they went through tests. The life of faith uh, is a hard life. Right? The life of faith is not just a bed of roses. Uh, it's not just a little smooth path. That God, will, God puts these tests uh, before us to strengthen that faith. And I think we'll see in every instance. Uh, there was a means there that God was using to intensify and to increase uh, the faith of these people. But the tests themselves uh, were not, uh, nor are they now, ever very pleasant uh, experiences. Okay, let's close and refresh.